Howdy folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and over the course of this show, we'll be creating an entire campaign for you to run from scratch. And by entire campaign, I mean we build a starting city or town, create characters, then create the scenarios that comprise a campaign. To this point, we've been building a campaign for Deadlands Classic. Last week we began with me doing a debriefing of how my group had handled the material we'd created to that point. We got so far that we had to get back into creating scenarios so that we could complete the remainder of that first night's gaming. And that was where we left it. So this week, we need to get back into creating the campaign. If you'll remember, when we ended the creative part of our last episode, we'd established that your group will have to deal with snipers slash lookouts in order to make your way to the cave you need to reach in order to save the kidnapped family. Now, I also noted that my group had left one of the bad guys alive and used that guy to get around the lookouts. If your group figures out how to do that, good on them. If they come up with their own creative way to get around them, good on them. If they decide to fight their way through the lookouts, it might work, but it'll also put those inside the cave on alert. For the record, there are four lookouts, two on the outer ring, watching the road near the area closely, and two more about 100 yards back, spread out about 50 yards and keeping the path to the cave cleared. So, one way or the other, your group eventually has to get to the cave. At this point, they need to consider their options for entering if they haven't already. If they didn't engage the lookouts, they've got the advantage, since the folks inside the cave don't know they're coming. Otherwise, they'll be on alert, and the players will have to make their rolls to avoid the bad guys getting the drop on them. That would be a cognition roll, and since they should be expecting trouble, let's keep the target number at 5. But if your group is acting all cocky or they don't seem to be taking it seriously, feel free to crank the target up to 10. The goal is not to punish your group, but to encourage them to take things seriously and to try to think about things like this tactically. Again, as I always say, run it the way you feel the most comfortable doing it. For the sake of simplicity, we're going to go with the thought that your group figured out a way to either avoid the lookouts or deal with them in a silent manner so as not to alert the cave. Now, backing up half a step, if the group managed to capture one of the bad guys who attacked them in Buzzard's Peak, they would have the same advantage as my group had and would learn the same information that they did. He'd be able to get them around the lookouts without issue, and he'd claim he had nothing to do with the foul deeds done to the young woman, but will fully admit he killed some of the townspeople, though he admits to doing it because he fears the leader of the group. All right, fast forward back to present, we find ourselves at the cave. I have to admit that the way I originally wrote this didn't have the explosives involved. I added that on the fly when my group played this game. However, I like the concept, so let's leave that in there. Since we're working from the assumption that the group managed to get to the cave without alerting those within it, they have the opportunity to try to sneak into the cave and get a better look. You'll want them to make rolls for that, and the target number is up to you. I have no problem with a 5, especially since the group inside the cave has not been alerted. However, if you're feeling like challenging your group a bit, you can go as high as 8 or 9, and I think you'd still be okay. If they make the roll, they can sneak down the entrance tunnel of the cave without issue. 
Okay, I guess we need to discuss the basic dimensions of this cave before we continue so that we understand why things are set up the way they are. I envision the cave having a narrow entry, about 10 feet wide. From there, it tunnels back, widening about a foot to a foot and a half for every two feet they move forward. The main part of the cave itself is about 50 to 60 feet wide, which allows for the setup to be like I'm gonna lay it out moving forward. Also, I see the height of the cave ceiling at at least 10 feet, though you can go higher if you like. To me, it's not so much about the height, though I know there's going to be a group or two who want to try some Mission Impossible level stuff to get into the cave. So have an idea about that before you begin. Getting back to the setup, I envision there being stacks of crates or wood or whatever, but something that could be moved about every 8 or 10 feet, which provide a shield from the outside as well as potential hiding spaces for those either defending the cave or those attempting to breach the cave. And yes, you can choose to have the group make their checks to see if they can continue to be stealthy as they make their way back. Once the cave opens up about 20 feet wide, the group will find a wagon. There aren't any horses on it, but it looks exactly like the wagon that was described to them by the marshal back in Triumph. And once they get another 10 feet in, they catch just enough lantern light to see the family they're trying to find. Now, Backing up just a smidge, let's talk about those explosives. The group will notice them as soon as they enter the cave, as there are small bundles on each side of the cave opening, about five feet inside the opening. If the group isn't aware of the explosives, either because they didn't have a survivor from their attack or the survivor chose not to tell them, I mean, that's always your choice, you could have the group make a check to see if they notice it. Since Theoretically, the characters should have their heads on the proverbial swivel, make the check of five. They'll also notice that there's a detonation wire running from each bundle back into the cave. For the record, there are bundles of explosives about every 10 feet running the entire interior of the cave. At least on those walls. If that's too much for you, extend the distance to 20 feet or more or whatever works for you. You also need to decide if this is good dynamite or bad dynamite. And what I mean by that is this, were the sticks packed well, either by a professional or a really good amateur, or were they packed by someone who really didn't know what they were doing or were just exceptionally sloppy? There's a difference. Good dynamite will have all the explosive properties that are listed in the player's guide, while bad dynamite can and will fail, which in this case means it either won't detonate when it's supposed to, or it just fizzles and does nothing. Again, that's your choice. Run with a choice that works best for you. And remember, if your group can pull off everything they're about to do, they may consider recovering the explosives for themselves. And yes, I speak from experience. Heading back into the cave, once the group figures out that the family they're looking for is there, they can also scan the cave and find the bad guys they're looking for. Now you can choose, if you'd like, to have anyone entering the cave to make checks to see if they can hear the argument the bad guys are having. Or... Frankly, you can just tell them about it, because in truth, they're being pretty darn loud. Apparently, there are three men arguing with a fourth man, and that fourth man appears to be the leader. They're going to be saying things like, This is your fault, Dave. Your greed put us here. Longshot's going to be really ticked at us when he finds out about this. Oh, the heck with Longshot. As usual, he leaves us things to deal with. Make the comments or statements be whatever you'd like. And as we lay more of this out, you'll find stuff that will help you do more to make this your own style. So don't feel like you just have to run with my cheesy dialogue. 
Now, the name long shot can cause a few checks if your players ask or if you just want them to. Give it. Anybody who's from the general area gets a target of five. Everybody else gets a 10. It's going to be more of an area knowledge. Long shot is long shot Gilbert. He's the leader of a fairly nasty bunch of dudes who work at this general section of Kansas and Colorado. Primarily, his men are strong arm types. Rumors are they've taken thousands of dollars off of small towns and travelers over the past five years. But also, and you're going to find out more later, these guys are also known as long shots, long shots because they can get the jobs done that other people say can't be done. Just trust me on that. I'll repeat it again later. Longshot's not really a guy you want to cross, but since your group's already stepped in it, well, <laughs> got to keep going, don't we? So let's lay everything out. The family is off to the left side of the cave as the players enter. The children are laying on some blankets and they're asleep. The man and the woman are tied up and sitting near them, with the woman looking almost catatonic and the man trying to basically just be as quiet as he can be and not be noticed. In the middle of this setup is a small-ish fire with a few seats around it and a pot of something hanging over it. The bad guys are off to the right, almost like they're trying to have a private conversation, though as loud as they are, it's not much of a private conversation. The guy that appears to be the leader is facing out towards the entrance of the cave with the other three facing him backs away from the group. So with the scene set, it's now time for your group to decide what it wants to do. If you want to take some of the choice out of their hands, you can always make checks for the bad guys to see if they notice the group approaching. However, any checks you make should be at least at a 10 since they're arguing and not really paying attention to what else is going on because they sure don't see the family as a threat. But if they do notice, they're going to try to find some cover, crates or whatever, and fire away. They might also try to get to the family and use them as shields. One other thing, the detonator for all that dynamite is sitting up against the far wall with the lines running down to it. Now, for my group, they're going to be able to make a check to see something. That something is that the lines aren't properly attached to the box, which means that hitting the plunger will do absolutely nada. You don't have to do that, of course, but I knew my group, and I don't want them to get blown up. Trust me. Of course, actually, shooting the dynamite is also an option for both sides, so any stray shots need to be checked on because that is a distinct possibility. So run the encounter however it's going to play out. When it's done, hopefully the group is still standing. If not, then it's game over and it was fun to see you. They can untie the adults and gather the kids and escape the cave. If they're thinking they can get the wagon out of there by moving some things around, then hitch their horses to it and get everyone back to Triumph, because that's going to be a closer trip than Santa Fe at this point. If they haven't dealt with the lookouts by this point, they'll need to unless they find a way out that doesn't take them past the edge of where the first group of lookouts is going. You're also going to want to pay attention to the time of day. If it's still fairly light out, the entire group can get moving and put a lot of distance between themselves and Buzzard's Peak before they need to stop for the night. However, if it's later in the afternoon, they'll either have to camp earlier than they'd like or push in the darkness for just a bit. Either way, they will have to camp at least once before they get to Triumph. Probably twice. Just use the same basic layout that he used to get to Buzzard's Peak from Triumph to get back to Triumph from Buzzard's Peak. Trust me. 
Before they head back to Buzzard's Peak, they'll come across a traveler on foot. This gentleman, a doctor, was robbed of his money and his horse by bandits who'd come along a day or so ago. He's unharmed and fortunately still has his doctor's bag, but he needs to get to Triumph, as he'd gotten word they were in need of a doctor and was going to go see if he could fill that need. The doctor can be whatever or whomever you want him to be. And I say him, could be her, could be they, however you want to do it. I know I gave him a name in my game, but I did it on the fly and I apparently didn't write it down in any of my notes, so it's lost until I run my next game night and have my players check their notes. Rule number one, folks, write this stuff down. This is yet another example of why I'm not necessarily the world's best GM. Anyway, I described him as an older gentleman, but it's obvious he tries to always be well-groomed, though a few days of walking the trail have left him looking rather disheveled. He is receptive to a ride from the group, especially since they've got patients he can tend to. Use the template in the player's guide for the doctor and just make sure he's got three dots in medicine and a couple in surgery. The children are suffering from extreme dehydration and malnutrition. He'll point out that a couple of days of food and water and they should be fine, short the mental trauma they've no doubt experienced. The man is also dehydrated and malnourished, but he's also had the you-know-what beat out of him and has bruises, various cuts, and appears to have broken bones, some of which the doctor will note have already started to heal and will probably need to be rebroken in order to set and heal properly. The woman is a completely different subject, and her condition depends entirely on what you had the bad guys do to her. Physically, she's definitely battered, cut, and bruised. Beyond that is up to you. Mentally, she's basically catatonic. She's not talking, and she seems to just stare off into space. The doctor will admit that he can treat her wounds, but healing her mind will take a whole lot longer. Once the crew makes its way back to Triumph, the players will certainly want to report everything that's happened. The citizenry of Triumph will step up and handle a lot of stuff. They'll take the family and set them up in the boarding house. They'll also set to getting them food, water, baths, and clean clothes. The doctor will also have plenty of assistance in seeing to their various medical needs. So from a gameplay perspective, the players, if they've been building a positive relationship with the town, don't have to do much more for them at this point. However, if you want to have various townspeople provide updates to the players as you go along, hey, feel free to work those up and drop them in as you see fit. For the record, that's what I did, especially because my players really were getting into the story. The first place the players will probably want to head to is the jail to check in with the marshal. He's got several things to tell him at this point. First off, the stack of money the woman left them is counterfeit. Really good counterfeits, but fake nonetheless. Second, the woman wound up not being who she said she was. Surprise, surprise. Come to find out she's a fairly notorious woman in all parts of the country. Give her any name you feel fits her. I say that because, again, I did this on the fly for my group and I didn't write the name down. I promise, next week I'll have the gaps in my notes filled in because I'll have spoken with my players by then and got what I missed. Anyway, it turns out she's wanted by the U.S. Marshals, the Texas Rangers, and she's wanted in Mexico. The U.S. has a $2,000 bounty for her, the CSA has a $3,000 bounty for her, and rumors are that Mexico has a 10,000 peso bounty out for her because she apparently seduced and killed a government official down there. At this point, the Marshal introduces two ladies to the group, United States Marshal Kate Sinclair and Texas Ranger Alexis Mendez. They've been working together for some time to track down our bad lady, and they'll provide the following background. 
she's attracted to men with money and power. Stereotype, I know, but sometimes they're stereotypes for a reason. They work. She finds ways to attach herself to her target, either by seducing them or finding a way to work with them. She's apparently considerably intelligent and trained in a number of different fields of work. Once she's in their good graces, she rips them off. She takes whatever she can and flees as quickly as possible. She's also worked with a number of different gangs throughout the North and South over the years and has managed to anger pretty much all of them because she gets away and leaves them holding the bag. Once they get through the briefing, they inform the group that they'd like to informally hire the players to track her down. They offer $1,000 for expenses as well as the bounties from their respective countries upon her capture. They also guarantee that they can clear the criminal records of anyone in the party who might have one, which gives an opportunity for a player to have a hindrance bought off if they happen to have that one. They don't need an immediate answer, but they need to know by morning because then they'll be leaving to try to track her down themselves if the group passes. As GM, I would encourage you to encourage your group to take the time to think about this. After all, they, they don't have to do this. But since they were involved in the rescue attempt and seeing how they didn't get any money out of that and also seeing how she used yet another criminal group to try to do her dirty work, the group probably won't need much convincing. We'll get back to that in a minute. Once the law dogs exit the office, the marshal wants details on what happened. For the record, this can take place while the law dogs are still there. But I put it here because I suck at organizing things and I only now realized I needed to put it in here. At least I'm honest. After the group lays out what happened, and especially if they've brought back a prisoner, the marshal thinks for a moment and realizes he knows what group they just dealt with. If they didn't figure it out on their own, he's going to tell them. He's pretty sure they've been dealing with long shots, long shots, which I know is a really creative name, but they're known for pulling off the jobs that people say cannot be done. He reports that Longshot Gilbert was found dead a couple of days ago, and it's been reported that his wife fled before anyone could speak with her. The marshal got a description of the woman from his source, and wouldn't you know, it matches with the woman who was in his office. That happens to be the same woman the law dogs are looking for. So, once again, our Black Widow has struck, and that's lowercase Black Widow. I don't need a lawsuit from Marvel or Disney. Thank you very much. Once they're done talking, the marshal encourages them to take the evening and decide what you want to do. He has no clue where this woman went other than the fact that she went west. So if they want more info, they're going to have to take the job. He does tell them since they lost out on their reward, he has a very large tab set up for them at the tavern and he encourages them to empty it for him tonight. So, when the group decides to take the job, and you and I both know they're going to agree to take the job, the law dogs provide them with what they know. According to all recent information, she managed to get out of Kansas by sweeping far south, then heading west. However, a couple of sources spotted her headed for Santa Fe, and one of the rangers' sources cabled her to let her know the woman had been spotted in town, most likely hunting for another mark. It'll take a bit to get there, but if the group wants the deal, it's theirs. The ranger also writes them a letter of introduction for the chief of police of Santa Fe to smooth the waters for what they're going to be doing. With that, the group now has the remainder of the evening to themselves, and you should encourage them to use it since they haven't had a good night's rest in a comfy bed for several days now. Plus, free booze? I mean, come on. 
So this is where we'll stop our building part of the show for the week and move on to the campaign debriefing. In other words, how did my group handle what we've created to this point? Well, first off, some of what I've laid out to you here comes directly from my game because we sort of freestyled a few things as we went along. And since it wasn't part of my initial construction, I've included it in the building part of the show. All right, let's back up to the pause point at the cave entrance. I also have to note that this game started with our group down two players, Jim and Aniston. I was playing their characters as NPCs for most of the session. The group decided that Jim and Aniston would remain just inside the cave entrance, along with their prisoner, to watch in case any of the lookouts returned to the cave. I made the rolls for all three, and they managed to figure out how to hide themselves enough so that someone approaching the cave would have to be almost on top of them before they'd see them. That left Scott, Gabe, and Max to head into the cave and see what was up. Scott immediately started looking for the explosive and made a real easy roll to find the dynamite, just like I laid it out in the earlier part of the show. He chose to cut it loose from the dead cord and pocketed it for future use. And yes, I know it's not technically dead cord, but come on, cut me some slack. He continued to do this as they made their way through the cave. I made him roll each time. Needless to say, he made all his rolls, so he lived. Once they got into the largest part of the cave, they noted the family. They noted where the bad guys were. They figured out they were arguing and not paying any attention to anyone else. And since all three players made exceptionally good rolls, they were quiet as church mice. Scott was able to see the detonator, and he noticed that the wires weren't connected. He made the observation that if the wires weren't connected, somebody didn't trust somebody else in the group. He took that as a mental note. The three players took a second to make sure that the players themselves, the people playing the characters, understood the layout and understood what they saw before they acted. And then Scott's first question to me when they finished was, how far away from me do you think that leader type is? I did some quick math and I informed him that the leader was well within the range of his rifle if he was so inclined. He was, and so I gave him a free shot since they were undetected. When he rolled... Yeah, remember back in episode four when I said that handling damage had been an issue for me for my first few sessions? Yeah, I didn't truly get how that was supposed to work. But the 40 damage Scott rolled on a called shot to the head was definitely enough for me to say he turned the leader's head into a ripe watermelon. That visual's for you. Go ahead. I thought it was fair. I still do, actually, now that I think about it. The group now focused on the three remaining men who spun and drew weapons. Gabe and Max had anticipated this and they drew their own weapons, so the bad guys were on the wrong side of a drawdown. Scott again used his abilities, with Gabe assisting as a pacifist with his own abilities, to talk the remaining three guys out of throwing down, and they agreed. They then tied the new group of prisoners together, called out to the lookouts to come in, and got their four prisoners organized together and ready to walk out. They checked on the family and learned what I told you in the creation part of this show. They managed to get the wagon out of the cave and back into Buzzard's Peak, mostly due to the work of their prisoners, and decided to hitch Aniston and Scott's mules to the wagon so that the family could ride in relative comfort in a covered wagon back to Triumph. They managed to find another wagon in the town, and they hitched Max and Gabe's horses to it. It, it wasn't a covered wagon, and it was in pretty rough shape, but since their goal was really just to load the prisoners into it, they weren't really that concerned. Realizing that they were literally on the clock because the lookouts were bound to check in at some point, they took a quick second to raid the hotel slash tavern for any and all liquor they thought would be any good, and they loaded it into the wagon with the family. 
Now, it was starting to get dark when they left, but they decided they were going to ride a few hours in the dark so they could put as much distance as possible between themselves and Buzzard's Peak before they stopped to camp. When they did camp, Scott noted that one of the new prisoners was one of the faces he saw having a bit too much fun with the woman when the band was doing their thing several days prior. And it was obvious he wanted to end the guy right there, but cooler heads prevailed and he agreed to take him to Triumph where he'd be arrested, tried, and probably hanged. The rest of the trip was uneventful until they were about a half day outside of Triumph. They came upon an older man carrying what appeared to be a doctor's satchel and walking towards town. Now, Jim was on his horse. He was doing recon, basically. He'd ride out ahead of the two wagons to see what was going on. His character came upon him first, got the story of being waylaid by bandits, yada, yada, yada. I detailed it already. Jim agreed to talk to the group about taking him to Triumph, and the rest of the group was in total agreement, especially because he agreed to immediately start treating the family. One thing they insisted on was that the doctor not treat any of the prisoners until he'd done everything he could for the family. The doctor provided treatment and passed along all of the information that I relayed earlier in this episode. Once they got to town, they worked with the townspeople to get the family settled in, and the doctor got to work. They went straight to the jail to meet with the marshal, and the interaction went pretty much the same way as I described just a moment ago. The one difference was that the Texas Ranger and U.S. Marshal were both in the room for the entirety of the discussion. And they agreed almost immediately to take the job because they were exceptionally angry about the entire situation and they decided that getting some money out of this was better than nothing, as well as a bit of retribution for what happened to the family, which I was impressed by with those three because I didn't really think the concept of retribution for people they just met would have played out, but it did and I was proud of them. Now that means they took that attitude to the tavern with them. Now, I realize this is where I left off on the campaign creation part of the show. However, I'm not going to stop the campaign recap because my group decided they wanted to play out a few things in the downtime, and I felt like sharing some of them with you just in case you're looking for ideas. I'm not going to claim they're good ideas, (laughs) but they're ideas nonetheless. Scott and Max decided to take advantage of the marshal's offer and see what they could do about that tab he paid for for them. Gabe agreed he wanted to do that as well, but he wanted to gamble, so we did the rolls like we'd done before, and he gambled and made some money. After a bit, the three decided they wanted to see what kinds of other liquors they'd pinched from Buzzard's Peak, then check to see if the bar in Triumph had them, since they were basically drinking for free. I made a few rolls, which was in this case high-low with a D6. One through three, no. Four through six, yes. They found rum, vodka, and gin, and the bar in Triumph has them as well, so they drank. I started having them make rolls to see how they were holding up, and Jim and Aniston faded first, basically because I didn't want to keep making rolls for their characters with them not being there. And you can have them roll against whichever one of their stats that you want to have them roll against to see, because there's not really constitution in this game. The others held on for a bit, but the bouncer from the entertainment house dropped in with a bottle of tequila. He also had the madam with him, and she was drinking a glass of fine wine and chatting with the group for a little bit. She seemed interested in the group for some reason, but she just stuck around for a little bit and then left. Needless to say, Scott, Gabe, and Max eventually failed their roles, and I informed them that they'd fallen into the blackened void of inebriated sleep. They hoped. Now, because I'm just that kind of GM... I decided I was going to mess with one of the three that was there because, much like in real life, if you want to get blackout drunk, you're going to do something that you can't remember but other people are going to remember pieces of. Scott was the lucky player who got messed with. 
Everybody else just woke up with a hangover. Scott, on the other hand, woke up in a strange bed, naked as the day he was born. He quickly realized his clothes were cleaned and neatly folded on a chair in the room. By making a few rolls at a bit of a disadvantage, he tried to remember what had happened the night before. And needless to say, he remembers nothing. But from what he could see in the room, he knows he's in the room of the madam. And she's not. Being the snooping kind of dude, he checked out her books and other items before he dressed and left the room. She's got a lot of books on a lot of scholarly topics, and I made it a point to throw some paranormal and death-related books in there as well, just to see if I could shake him. When he exited the room, the bouncer was leaned back in his chair near the door. He applauded Scott as he made his way to the front door, telling him he had one heck of a night, then unlocked the door and let him out. I spent the next half hour or so dropping hints as to what might have happened, though Scott's character couldn't remember any of it due to continuing to miss his roles. What he's been able to piece together to this point is that he got drunk, passed out, got drugged next door, and at some point puked on his clothes, so they got sent out to be cleaned. He does remember cuddling with the madam at some point, but that's it. He can't remember anything else, and nobody who might know anything is saying anything. Jim arrived at the game around this point, and time was spent bringing him up to speed on what had happened. And I have to say that on this particular game night, the adventure continued, but since we haven't created it yet, we're going to stop the recap right here. But I want to say one more thing. For anybody that might be concerned that the scenario that I'm playing out with Scott's going to be lewd or rude or crude, and I know Scott listens to the show, but that's okay. Here's the deal. Basically, he got drunk, puked on himself. She put him in a comfortable bed. Yes, she did snuggle with him, but there were multiple blankets between them. Nothing happened she just for whatever reason has taken interest in him and wanted to make sure he was okay that is literally how the whole scenario is going to play out okay next time we'll create the next segment of our campaign then i'll get into the recap of how my group dealt with that situation so make sure you don't miss that you also won't want to miss this week's episode of Role Playing History as we take a look at digital game aids like D&D Beyond and Fantasy Grounds. Role Playing History is available wherever you get your podcasts. The music we use for this program comes from Pixabay.com. Check them out for all your royalty-free and license-free music needs. Bad GM's Campaign Build Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Follow us on Facebook, Bad GM Productions, Twitter, at Bad GMP, YouTube, Bad GM Productions, Twitch, Bad GM, and you can email us at badgmproductions at gmail.com. If you've got questions about the campaign we've created so far, or if you've run it and want to share how it worked for you, hit us up. You might just find your questions and solutions appearing in a future episode of the show. But before we get to that... We'll build some more of our campaign next week. Until then, this has been Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along, and I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, saying adios until next time.